The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Rational Security for December 11th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a weekly roundtable podcast featuring Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein. It's a lively and irreverent discussion of news, ideas, foreign policy, and law. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, The Dork at 4 p.m. edition. In the episode, Jurassic, Anderson, and Rosenstein sat down to discuss the verdict in the first Oath Keepers trial that saw each defendant convicted of at least one criminal offense. The continued protests in Iran and signals from the regime that it might disband the morality police, and the recent 11th Circuit ruling reversing Judge Eileen Cannon's order to appoint a special master to oversee documents in question in the Mar-a-Lago litigation. This is Rational Security. Hey there, Rational Security listeners. A quick note before we get started with this episode, we will once again be doing our year-end listener-submitted episode of the podcast in the week before New Year's. So if you have any topics you want to hear us discuss, any object lessons you want to share, be sure to email them to rationalsecurity at lawfareblog.com so we can include them in the episode. Thanks so much. You guys have been on the road. Where have you been? You've been leaving me alone here. Well, I, I think I've made the better choices because I went to sunny Miami and Quinta went to, I don't know, maybe it was sunny, but colder. I went to rainy Hanover, New Hampshire, rainy home Hanover. of Dartmouth College. <laughs> Do you know that the sun sets at 4 p.m. this time of year? Uh, An outrage. That's, this is, that's the same latitude that I'm at. Alan and I spent some time in bo- nearby Boston, so <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're aware of when the sun No, not sets. Tufts. <laughs> Across the river, well, not from Tufts, but across the river from Boston. Yeah. The, the undergraduate institution I attended, we like to refer to ourselves as uh, the Harvard of Central Connecticut. <laughs> it was not Yale. That's fabulous. Wait, when were when were you when were you in Boston, Scott? I was a fellow at Harvard back in the day, back when my wife oh, was in business school. There. Scott is just so this is this is just as a preview of our first in uh, of our of our this is a preview of our first topic. But Scott is desperately trying to um, not associate himself with a particular August law school. <laughs> I'm throwing some, I'm throwing some chaff out there, trying to misdirect <laughs> and keep you off my trail. <laughs> you never know what elite institutions I'm associated with. <laughs> and what other elite institutions they are trying to overthrow. (laughs) Hello, 
everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here back for the first time in several weeks with both of my other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. It's so nice to once again see your 2D faces on my monitor. <laughs> Yours is quite fuzzy right now, not because you haven't shaved. It's because this connection is a bother. <laughs> not, not only because I haven't trimmed my beard in some time. Are you a winter beard grower? Are you are you deep into winter beard season? I used to be, and I realized I look like a complete insane person. To, I think to I'm like not insulate the year. face? Yeah, and just because like you're always looking for that excuse when you're a man to just give up what little minute piece of daily hygiene you have to maintain. Uh, and Amen. so I, was, I always used to look forward to that, but I, then I just look too crazy. I, I will say, as, as a woman, I'm also looking for that excuse <laughs> but unfortunately it comes at a higher cost growing so. a, and growing a beard is not Fair. that is not your, not your an method. option for me yeah yeah you know i scott i i am tempted and i and i have done that in the past though i found that when i was a younger thinner man i could sort of pull it off and now that i am a father of a small toddler and a fatter man <laughs> it just looks so sad i just i don't know too santa, it's santa, a, too santa. santa it's 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 too like like Unabomber slash Santa, it's not a good look anymore. It was never a great look, but it's like an especially. That's an interesting combination. Now. Yeah, I did yeah. spend one year growing my hair and beard out over the winter for a very long time, not a pandemic related. And then I coincidentally found myself on TV very unexpectedly, and saw caught the footage later. It was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is lacking any credibility whatsoever. This cannot, this cannot continue. Uh, so I've tried to keep it in check since then, even in the winter months. Uh, we'll see if I if I don't get a little bit lazy. But this is a big digression because we have more important <laughs> things to talk about than our facial hair practices. Uh, although it's great to have my co-host back in the house this week because we've had a couple of big national security stories drop in this past week, as we always do. And we are excited to have you here to discuss them with us in what we are calling the Dork at 4 p.m. edition in honor of our winter modes. Wait, alternatively, I just realized that we could also call it the reunited and it feels I thought so about that. Good. It's too much. It's really? too much. But you do, Jen, do please leave that in <laughs> so, so that we can <laughs> capture that moment. Because it's actually surprisingly good. Alan's got, Alan's got a, little, oh, a little music. It's got a little thanks, soul. Man. Too. I appreciate that. There we go. Um, well, we are excited to get into these topics for the week. Topic one. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is still guilty of seditious conspiracy. <laughs> one of your, I gotta say, Scott, this is one of, I think this is one of your better ones in a while. I really like <laughs> it's really one of the easier tired. ones. It really came to me very quickly because it's not that hard because it's not that clever, but I'll take it. The jury in the Oath Keepers trial came back last week convicting every defendant of at least one criminal offense, including the controversial charge of seditious conspiracy for many of them. What might this mean for other January 6th investigations moving forward? Topic two, morality, please. <laughs> Weeks of protests in Iran. You have to think about that one for a second for it to come together. Weeks of protests in Iran finally seemed to bear fruit this past week when a regime official signaled that the morality police responsible for the initial incidents of violence that led to the protests may be disbanded and laws requiring that women wear hijabs be repealed. But other regime figures don't seem on board with that solution. Is this a sign that protests are succeeding? Where might they go from here? And topic three, les fleurs du ML, les fleurs du mal, for those Baudelaire heads out there, along with Quinta. The litigation all that led Judge, them. all seven of the Baudelaire heads, the hell of a Facebook group. It works better written out. Just, just, imagine the mast, just imagine the mastodon instance of these people. It's unbelievable. 
Fleur.mal. The litigation that led Judge Eileen Cannon to appoint a special master to review evidence collected by the FBI from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate this past summer has finally culminated in its final form, an 11th Circuit ruling reversing Judge Cannon's order and disbanding the process altogether. Where will the investigation go from here? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So last week, a federal jury in D.C. handed down the first verdict in the one of two uh, seditious conspiracy cases involving Oath Keepers. And it turned out that two of the five Oath Keepers on trial were, according to the jury, guilty of seditious conspiracy, specifically uh, Kelly Meggs and none other than our one-eyed man himself, Stuart Rhodes, a.k.a. a fellow graduate of the August Institution of Yale Law School. Shout outs here to Scott. The other I'm raising three... the roof for yeah. any fellow Yale <laughs> out there. I got, I got you covered. Don't worry. The felon from New Haven. Hey, look, guys. It's just nice to be in the news. We'll take it. (laughs) The best. I will say the best joke I saw about this was from Mike Stern, a former congressional lawyer who who tweeted uh, in response to my joke of that the headline should be Yale Law School graduate found guilty, that the headline should actually be uh, Yale Law School graduate gains trial experience. (laughs) Fair. It's fair. It's good. It's good. good. That's very good. So. Now that we've made that crack at Scott's expense. Um, So the the three other defendants, also Oath Keepers, were found not guilty of seditious conspiracy, but guilty on other charges, including obstructing an official proceeding. So kind of an interesting split verdict from the jury here. There is a ton to talk about, not in the least of which is the fact that we have another seditious conspiracy trial coming up for a second group of Oath Keepers. We also have a seditious conspiracy coming up for the Proud Boys. But Alan, I want to go to you first because I know you have been interested in the uses and abuses of seditious conspiracy as a kind of prosecutorial tool to meet this moment. What does the verdict say about the ability, the government's ability to use the seditious conspiracy statute going forward? I'm particularly interested in your thoughts, given the fact that the verdict was actually split. Sure. So I, I think this is a real win for the use of seditious conspiracy as a tool to fight anti-democratic extremism. And actually, I think that the split decision makes it even better. DOJ obviously would have wanted an across-the-board set of guilty verdicts, because that's what DOJ wants, which makes sense. But I think if you're kind of stepping back and you're thinking about what is best in the long term for the ability to responsibly fight anti-democratic extremism with the tools of the criminal law, I think actually the split verdict we have is even better um, than a straight down the line verdict. So, you know, with respect to the the basic guilty verdicts for uh, Rhodes and Megs, obviously I think what that shows is that it is in fact possible to use seditious conspiracy. It is not an easy charge to prove um, in part because the conduct at issue or the, 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 charge itself is very serious. And so there's, you know, obviously a high burden of proof there. In addition, it's quite an old statute that doesn't obviously mean that it's expired or anything, but just from a drafting perspective, you know, they didn't write statutes terribly well in the mid 19th century. It's confusingly written. It's very broad in places. Um, I think for a bunch of reasons, um, you know, the government hasn't used it a lot. And obviously the the last time it's used it um, before January 6th, which was in the 2012 or 2013 Hutari Christian militia prosecution in Michigan, uh, that all ended as a total disaster uh, when the judge basically threw out the, the charge for legal insufficiency, not just factual insufficiency. So having these 
verdicts, especially against the leaders of you know, the leader of the Oath Keepers, I think is a, is a really big victory. At the same time, I think it's actually really good that some of these defendants were acquitted on seditious conspiracy. Not because necessarily I think that they didn't commit it. Um, ultimately, these were difficult factual questions for the jury to decide. And um, I think the jury, it seems, took its responsibility to look very carefully at every defendant and to make the very fine factual distinctions that each defendant deserves under the criminal law. They took that seriously. Um, and so I think as a general matter, that actually shows that we can use seditious conspiracy in a responsible way, which is to say that juries are not going to be cowed into returning guilty verdicts just because the government accuses someone of seditious conspiracy. In addition, more concretely for DOJ's purposes, I think the the acquittals, not just on seditious conspiracy, but on some of the other charges for some of the other defendants, and it's notable here that Rhodes, although he was convicted on seditious conspiracy, was actually acquitted on some of the other conspiracy charges, which is interesting. I think that shows that DC juries in particular can be completely impartial and completely responsible. I think that was a concern, you know, as these trials were ramping up, you know, could you find an unbiased DC uh, jury, given that the crime commit, you know, occurred in DC and the fact that DC has a, you know, just politically speaking is a, a, a one of, if not the most uh, left-leaning jurisdictions in, in the country. Uh, and I think that the fact that we had this slate of results shows that they can be totally impartial. So, um, again, I, I think although you know, DOJ may have, may have preferred a more across-the-board verdict, uh, I think zooming out, I think this is actually a, a terrific result for small-D democracy, and, and I think it's a, a, you know, very impressive. So I don't disagree with that in terms of I think it, says, it tells us good things about DC jury tools and is an important like kind of proof of concept there. Like the people are going to try and undermine prosecutions of this sort of type because of DC's political character, because it is one of the bluer, you know, districts in the country and saying that these are illegitimate because they're going to convict anyone of anything. And this does point against that in a, in a useful way. Although the way the jury parsed the charges on this, I think are actually like harder to make sense of. Our colleague, Roger Parloff, I think it did his best of job as you can. Some of it makes sense because there's like a couple of outlier defendants, but particularly like the pattern of the way the different conspiracies do and don't line up. It does seem like you had Rhodes and Megs, who are the two kind of like main leadership guys, primarily get the seditious conspiracy charge, which is kind of the broadest conspiracy as the government framed it in terms of it started like weeks before January 6th and really kind of ended after January 6th. And other people were convicted of the narrower conspiracy charge and plus Megs, which is to prevent officials from discharging duties, but not Rhodes. And there's just a lot of parsing of hairs between these scope of conspiracies in a kind of odd way that I have trouble making complete sense of based on the facts. And I kind of suspect may have been a little bit of kind of splitting the baby uh, that juries do do. It's like not an you've been on a jury. You probably experienced it where they do say, well, we have some disagreement about this. Let's let's convict on this one and not on this one. Uh, and people reach compromise and stuff like that. More fundamentally, though, you know, I have this question, I guess, it's mostly for you, Alan. Uh, Quinton, welcome your thoughts as well. What is really the marginal value of seditious conspiracy versus other types of conspiracy to do unlawful conduct, right? Because it inherently, because it is about mentality and a very politically motivated type of intent. And it really like gets at intent being a part of the criminal element, not just in mens rea context, but the actual substance of intent. It always implicates kind of First Amendment questions and always kind of will. And that's that's what it's vulnerability in other trials. And there are other contexts and types of offenses where we see this, like hate crimes, right? Like, And hate crimes kind of make sense because in hate crimes, we want to hook for a federal jurisdiction. So we say, well, it's the hateful intent behind these violent acts that otherwise be criminalized at the state level that lets us pull them into federal law enforcement. 
orbit because that common thread is what makes them uniquely of importance to the federal jurisdiction. But you don't need that to establish federal jurisdiction here because, of course, you're obstructing a federal proceeding and you're breaking federal property and unlawfully entering federal property and the variety of other offenses, all of which could be predicates of, and were in this case in some, some, but not all cases, of conspiracy offenses. So, so I'm just not sure what additional work seditious conspiracy is doing here other than layering on additional charge. Maybe there's a strong moral judgment sort of like symbolic significance, but I tend to discount that and don't always think it's super useful so much as something that is likely to either confuse or make jurors feel torn, other observers feel torn, it seems more politically charged, which is something you'd want to probably ever away from in these kinds of cases. So I'm just not sure what what the added benefit of that. I mean, this, this grounds for charge, which was enacted, first argued for by kind of pro-slavery people before the Civil War, then enacted after the Civil War, and primarily in the context of you know, aiming for people trying to secede from the union. It's been controversial since its origin. It's always been politically charged. And I, I just don't know. I'm not sure what the marginal value is. What is it you see as the reason why it's good to have this on the books as a tool DOJ can deploy on top of other conspiracies? Yeah. So to, to, to respond to the two points you made, Scott, just briefly with respect to sort of why some of these charges and not others, I, I think it's pretty straightforward why, let's say, only Rhodes and Megs gets a seditious conspiracy charge while the others get the smaller charges. I do agree with you. It's a little weird for Rhodes to to get the seditious conspiracy, but not the smaller ones. I think part of it is because it, it, you know, maybe it's you know, splitting the baby. Maybe it's just because I think it can be hard for juries to sort of keep track of all the different conspiracies that are going on. Also, when you have underlying offenses, it, it's just it's just messy. Uh, and, and so I think part of them might, might explain that. I don't think that undermines, let's say, the use of seditious conspiracy, but it, it is certainly a c- complication that happens whenever you have a bunch of conspiracy charges floating around. You know, as to your main question, you know, why seditious conspiracy? You know, I, I do think that it can sometimes implicate First Amendment issues, but it doesn't always have to, right? I mean, if the conduct that's being criminalized is based on, well, conduct rather than speech, right? If it's like an actual plan to do something, just because you're punishing it more for an attack on the government, I don't think that actually raises any First Amendment issues necessarily. Um, so I think the First Amendment issue is just different from the Sitch conspiracy issue, though one can imagine those two interacting in some cases, but not not always. As to why Sitch conspiracy, I, I do think it's a symbolic value. Um, and, and, you know, look, it's hard to measure the symbolic effect of criminal prosecutions. Um, but I, 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 my intuition, at least, is that it is still useful, right? Just in the way that it is useful to charge someone with terrorism, right? Rather than just murder or blowing something up or, you know, whatever the actual thing is, because you are sending a signal that this particular conduct is particularly disfavored in our society. Now, the tricky thing is that when you have a crime that allows you to make these sort of additional expressive or allows the government to make these additional expressive claims, you have to make sure that it's going to be used properly. And you're absolutely right. There's nothing in the seditious conspiracy statute, nor could there be in the seditious conspiracy statute that would cabinet to only that political ideology that you don't like, right? And you're absolutely right that when, you know, abolitionists were breaking the law in the 1850s, sometimes violently, they were 100% committing sedition. And that's just the fact that, you know, there is a tension between, on the one hand, the basic principle of a rule of law society that you raise your objections peacefully with the political order and the fact that some political orders are so immoral by their nature that 
violent resistance is morally required. I mean, that, that's just a tension between morality and, and law. And one can imagine this coming up again now, right, in 2020. Uh, we all remember when, you know, after the summer uh, of the unrest, after the George Floyd murder, the deputy attorney general sent that memo out to the field saying, hey, by the way, consider using seditious conspiracy um, against some of these protesters. And that was criticized, um, I think, correctly, because that was an overreaction and kind of tone deaf to the to the context. But I think one could imagine situations where even if the underlying cause was just the conduct reached such a level of violence against the government, qua the government, that you would have to ask a really hard question about, you know, does the requirement for rule of law justify this kind of heavy charge? So I'm not saying it's it's simple or it's not without its risk, but I don't think you can get away from these hard questions that a democracy sometimes has to face in times of extreme political unrest, whether they're justified or not justified, by just saying, ah, I don't want to have to deal with this problem. Let's just not use seditious conspiracy ever as a statute. So I think that that raises a lot of really interesting questions, just on the the much more specific point of why Rhodes and Megs got hit with guilty verdicts on the seditious conspiracy and the other uh, the others did not. I actually, I think it's reasonably straightforward. I mean, so uh, again, I'll point to our colleague Roger Parloff's great write-up of this in, in Lawfare, that there was a real question about whether or not the sedition involved here was seditious conspiracy or in Roger's words, seditious kvetching. In other words, you know, to, to what extent did the Oath Keepers actually have a plan? And if you look through the evidence, it seems like Rhodes and Megs are the most involved in actual planning for, you know, civil war, bloodshed, all that. There's also, and Roger notes this in a follow-up piece he wrote, and I'm also drawing here on the work of um, Brandy Buckman at Daily Coast, who has been doing really, really good reporting on the Oath Keepers trial, that Rhodes and Miggs continued to resist the transfer of power even after January 6th. There's evidence introduced in the trial that Rhodes went out and bought thousands and thousands of dollars worth of firearms. They keep talking about, you know, rising up an insurrection and the others don't do that. And so if you want to draw a line there, that might be a line that could be drawn, that the fact that they're talking about this much more explicitly on the front end and that they continue even after the 6th. Um, it seems reasonable to me that if the jury that the jury could have seen, you know, a, a line that could have been drawn there. You know, I, I, I don't have a trouble seeing why, frankly, uh, Rhodes and Megs are part of the broader conspiracy. It's finding the part that they're not part of the narrow conspiracy, specifically Rhodes, that I find the thing that's hardest to explain. But, you know, again, there are differentiations. In fact, I think Roger kind of gets at this in his piece. Uh, I'm blanking on the exact thing, but I think basically there's like not quite as clear a documentary trail of Rhodes being specifically involved in, in part because he wasn't on the cap at the Capitol at that moment or entering the Capitol building that he may not have been involved in the immediate decision to, you know, stack in and move into the building. And so that's what jurors were drawn to. But I don't think that's where the Justice Department was drawing the line on those conspiracies. Uh, I think that's how jurors chose to do it. They, they, they drew a distinction between saying, well, here's the different conspiracies. But inherently, I think that's actually kind of an arbitrary distinction because I think you could have drawn the conspiracy and a jury could have easily found that they were the two conspiracies substantially overlapped. And then, frankly, the question in my mind comes in like, well, what's the is there actually not an inherent risk to having multiple types of conspiracies overlapping in this way in very small technical ways? And then again, it's what's the work versus the the merit versus the uh, underside of having seditious conspiracy on top of what you could have, which is a conspiracy to 
not allow Congress to do its job, interrupt a federal proceeding, break into a building, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just where I, I, I still have, have trouble with seeing exactly what the meritorious benefit is, except maybe if there is that symbolic significance that, that Alan noted. Um, but I'm always, I don't know, not less persuaded that does have kind of the clearest value, that there's a real marginal value there compared to if there is substantive risk, which I think there is sometimes of bringing those charges and seeing them fail. I guess moving on for, for future cases, we know we have a few other seditious conspiracy cases moving. We also have a D.C. Circuit appeal about the interpretation of um, another criminal provision that we've seen a number of cases be brought under. You know, does, do we think this changes the trajectory of these prosecutions, any particular direction, one way or the other? Or is this just really kind of confirmation that the Justice Department strategy seems like a sound one, even though there were, you know, some charges acquitted in this very high-profile trial, every defendant was you know, ultimately convicted of at least one charge, which is generally pretty successful in terms of if your objective is to kind of get people engaged in this criminal activity off the street. So does we think that we anticipate a change in strategy or is this just kind of confirmation of the strategy as it stands? So Scott, I, I just want to kind of go back to this question of sort of, again, what does seditious conspiracy add? And I want it to be really concrete. Seditious conspiracy is the second most serious charge in the federal code, right? There's treason, and then there's seditious conspiracy. Obviously, there are charges with higher maximums, but I just think from, again, from kind of a rhetorical perspective, treason is the worst thing you can do, and seditious conspiracy is right there next to it in the criminal code. And I'm not sure that has like a deterrent effect on Stuart Rhodes, but I do think that to the extent that right now, a decent part of the Republican Party, especially at the local level, but also at the national level, is playing footsie with groups like the Oath Keepers, right? Either supporting them explicitly, sometimes being members of those groups, but other times doing stupid stunts like that, that image of Josh Hawley with his stupid fist raised, which I just cannot get out of my head. I think that is harder to do when the question is, Senator, you know, you have been on record saying nice things about someone who a jury of his peers said is a seditious conspiracist. I mean, that's, that's something. And again, I don't think that should be discounted. Um, although, again, DOJ will obviously have to decide on a case-by-case basis if the equities are such that it's worth the risk of bringing that kind of heavy charge. Now, as to your question about what this means going forward, that, I think, is a lot less clear. On the one hand, DOJ has two seditious conspiracy verdicts under its belt, and other defendants know that D.C. juries are willing to return seditious conspiracy verdicts. On the other hand, the th- three least central members of this first tranche got off on seditious conspiracy, and it's only getting kind of less serious going forward. So I can also imagine a defendant in these next trials saying, I'm going to roll the dice. So I, I think that this, this sort of comes down to the psychology of individual defendants and what their views on plea bargains is. I, I can imagine it going with all sorts of ways. I can imagine pleas. I can imagine this new uh, jury being much more aggressive than the sole jury and finding, frankly, everyone guilty of seditious conspiracy. You know, juries don't have precedential effect on each other. Or I could imagine DOJ having a much worse time, um, but ultimately, you know, th- this time around. But ultimately, I think it's going to be able to take these two verdicts to the, to the bank. And that's the only thing anyone will ever remember, that the, the, the heads of the Oath Keepers were convicted for seditious conspiracy. Everything else, while obviously important to the defendants, does not matter to the narrative going forward, really. So from domestic turmoil to international turmoil, or maybe domestic turmoil at home to domestic turmoil in someone else's home. 
Uh, let's talk about what's I'm going gonna on. Stop putting international and domestic topics next to each other. We're just going to do a run of one per episode. You're making so it too easy. Get rid of the segue. Yes, yes. Um, so it's been three months now since uh, the death of the Iranian woman Masamini at the hands of the so-called morality police led to really amazing. I mean, the the biggest I think Iranian protests since these are the rise of of uh, the, the uh, Iranian religious regime in the 1970s. And it's not been clear where it's headed, though we did get some indication about that when just a few days ago, the Iranian government announced, well, maybe question mark, seemed to announce that the morality police, the the much hated group of enforcers who go around enforcing uh, in part the strict dress code, especially for, uh, for Iranian women, uh, has been disbanded. Though the underlying dress code of, of the hijab and the kind of quote-unquote modest clothing remains, leading some to wonder, well, how is that going to be enforced if the morality police is gone? Does that really mean that the morality police is gone? So, Quinta, let, let me start with you. Um, you know, on the substantive level, do we think that this long-hated and deeply symbolic element of the Iranian regime really is gone? And more generally, sort of what does it say about how successful or not the protests have been so far? Yeah, so it's it's been very confusing what exactly has happened. And I will confess, and, and Scott, maybe you can help clarify this for us. I'm still not entirely sure. So my best understanding of, of what took place is that the attorney general of Iran was asked at a press conference why the morality police had not been seen on the street. Uh, he gave a, a vague kind of answer uh, that was interpreted by the Western press as indicating that the police had been abolished. Then following that, Iranian state media said that the police had not been abolished. And now there is some indication that perhaps it, it has been. So I will count myself as as deeply confused, honestly. Um, I mean, I, I do wonder, and I'm Scott, I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on this, whether or to what extent that it's a reflection of Western media outlets not understanding the particular political dynamics within different corners of the Iranian government, and to what extent it reflects actual confusion and perhaps disagreement within the Iranian government about what should be done, if anything, in, in response to these protests. Because certainly when, when it was initially reported by outlets like the New York Times that the police were being disbanded, it was reported as an enormous victory. Uh, for the protesters. So it's a totally a fair question. I mean, it's an incredibly confusing situation. And it's not unusual, I think, to, to actually have a little bit of a confusing sense about how certain decisions are made in Iran of a high political character with a lot of weight behind them, because Iran is in government that has kind of multiple tiers of authority that often overlap and operate kind of in black boxes that are hard to penetrate. Of course, you have kind of the government that's kind of the Shadow, not shadow government, because quite official, but the kind of background government led by the Ayatollah, closely allied with the Revolutionary Guard Corps, had very influential, particularly around issue sets kind of like this, um, strong kind of authoritarian strains and their ability to control things. And then you have a, you know, at times what has functioned as even like a 
pseudo democratic kind of overlay where there are elections, there's parliaments, there's a president who gets elected, they head up different agencies, they appoint officials. It looks like a lot of other more conventional governments. It's just that those decisions are always subordinate to the decisions by the higher level. It's much more complicated than that, but this is a very, very general simplification. I don't think we really know whether, and my sense is it, it does not seem like there's a strong unity among all those different parts. But when you're in a moment of crisis like this, the informal norms and practices that generally empower one branch over another when you don't have formalized institutions and legal processes like we do uh, here in a lot of areas, but not all areas of our, of our government, you know, that those are moments where you can see people try and push and say, well, maybe this is a different policy that I have an opportunity to pursue here more than I would at other times. Maybe that's what the attorney general was trying to do, saying this is the direction we should move in and I'm going to try and move things in this direction. Also possible entirely a miscommunication or confusion on his part as to what was intended or on what he was communicating, what, what to be done. I think right now the key point is that the Iranian people aren't taking it that seriously. Or if they are, it is not actually making a big difference on the ground. We saw an intended strike nationwide, three days, I think across 40 cities. It's the kind I saw kick off today, if I recall correctly. And that's still moving forward. And that's a really exceptionally well-coordinated, broad, national, cross-sectarian, cross-class, cross-age group, you know, protest movement that's appearing to kick, appealing to kick off here uh, or to continue at a large scale in a way that was real economic, social impact and makes it hard to govern a society that's willing to do that. It also means people are willing to take on a lot of economic hardship to continue to express these elements of discontent. It doesn't. If this was an effort to try and assuage people and get them to calm down, it doesn't appear to have worked. And then the question is, well, is the regime willing to do more to actually address people's concerns, or are they just going to buckle down and begin to crack down more? Uh, and that's really, I think, what we're waiting to see over these next coming days and weeks. Scott, I'm curious for your thoughts on whether or not doing more from the regime, let's say actually disbanding the morality police and not just reconstituting it under a new name, maybe even going farther and repealing these repressive laws, uh, you know, that, that require uh, women to dress in a, in a particular way. Would that actually help the situation in the sense of diffusing the tension? I mean, my, my sense is that, you know, once you have a, a popular uprising that's crossed a particular threshold where, you know, people are really committed, people have died, you know, people understand the stakes, that concessions by the regime are not interpreted as, okay, now we can go home to our lives. They're interpreted as, wow, we can do something, right? And that concessions just lead to, to greater demands. And, and you know, this, this worries me because I'm assuming that the folks, you know, the, the government in Iran understands this as well. And, 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 and that the kind of quote unquote rational from their perspective response is to crush the protests much more aggressively, right? That you know, at this point, you maybe reached a tipping point where the only way that you save the regime is by adopting, you know, Tiananmen Square type repression. I, I think that's entirely possible. And that's really, I think, what we're going to have to wait and see which way the regime goes, because there's risks really on both sides, right? I mean, we saw this protest movement, not unlike many other protest movements around the world, actually really kind of kick off and expand dramatically because of the regime's initial violent response. I mean, rem remember, you know, the initial murder of that young woman was in part because of what was tied up to elements of civil disobedience, kind of a not a protest in the same way, but its own type of representation and protest that she was may have been engaged in or was accused of being engaged in. Uh, and the same with lots of other young people. Now we're seeing 
the protest protest movements involve their parents. Um, there are all these really, really heartrending quotes of people whose children have been killed in protests and some who have now themselves been killed, who have joined the protests by security forces crackdown, which have actually been quite violent and quite, quite brutal already. And it's actually mobilizing people further. The question is, you know, what balance of sugar and uh, honey and vinegar of, you know, a stick and carrot can you actually use to try and get people to just provide their tacit consent or acquiescence to the status quo and let people stay in power. I, I kind of doubt the regime feels it's like an imminent threat of power. The one thing that we don't see here is that there's no political faction that's mobilizing on this popular content. This is actually like a common phenomenon, weirdly, in like a lot of Arab Spring and afterwards popular uprising in the Middle East. You see it certainly in Egypt during uh, Tahrir Square 10, 12 years ago. You see it more recently in Iraq um, with kind of the popular protest movement there, which has ties to Iranian protest movement as well. You know, this idea that it's a very decentralized movement um, and it's not tied to a political party or agenda that can advance itself in the political institutions, often because there's a sense of rejecting the political status quo as having any validity, seeing as corrupt and illegitimate, often for totally legitimate reasons. But because it doesn't manifest any sort of political leadership or movement, it's not clear what exactly the tipping point will be, you know, what is going to ultimately oust people out of power who are in power, except if the state collapses or the economy collapses. And, and it, that's a very costly endeavor for the people engaged in these activities. So, you know, seeing which way the regime goes, that that's really the question now. It's probably going to be some combination of the two, some light concessions with some aggressive means of repression, we might guess, because I don't know what other toolkit they have and some blend at least maybe captures elements of both. But, you know, it, it's likely to be, it strikes me as, and I think we've heard intelligence assessments from Israeli and U.S. officials the last couple of days kind of say, this is likely to be an endemic problem for the Iranians for the exact reason you noted. The Iranian people now understand that there is widespread discontent in society. People are willing to act on it. And maybe the regime's like willing to budge a little bit. Uh, at least there's enough hope of that, that people are continuing to go out in the streets in even larger numbers. Um, and if that sentiment is there, that's not something that goes away very easily. If anything, probably it's still echoing now from the Green Revolution, you know, 10 years ago, the protests several years ago, that, that this is in some ways a, another resurfacing of. And that sentiment is likely to stay there, it seems to me, you know, barring a truly, truly savage sort of um, repression campaign maybe even more than Tiananmen Square, maybe something more along the lines of like, you know, Syria that would really uproot it in a, and uproot the social networks that kind of undergird a lot of this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird 
antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. For for what it's worth, Reuters just reported or a, an hour or two ago that uh, the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has called for a, quote, revolutionary reconstruction of the country's cultural system, which may be weird you know, Iran government speak for uh, making some concessions, though. Who, who knows? Before we, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about the domestic situation in Iran, but I do want to spend some time talking about the, the foreign policy implications of this. And in particular, what Iran has been doing kind of externally, you know, there's a really interesting, I think it was a Washington Post piece uh, about how Western officials are increasingly concerned about the increased tempo of Iranian operations abroad to target you know, Iranian dissidents, civil society folks, even American officials, uh, not just campaigns of harassment, but murder for hire schemes, 
um, and you know, all, all, all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously, uh, some of this is is driven probably by revenge for the the assassination uh, in 2020 of uh, uh, Soleimani. Um, this was a, under a, a Trump administration drone strike that was quite controversial at the time, and, and you know, for which I think most observers, whether they were for it or against it, could have predicted some level of uh, of blowback from Iran. Um, but the campaign is actually much broader than than just that. And so I'm I'm curious. Let me start with you, Scott, for your thoughts about. You know how how big of a deal is this increased belligerence from Iran, and and is the the bite as bad as the bark, as it were? I mean, I think it's certainly a big deal, and it's a phenomenon we're seeing spreading. It's not just an Iranian phenomenon, right? We have reports just out the same week, for the last two weeks, emphasize again that the Chinese government has essentially secret police stations stationed around the world, engaging in very similar activity, a little less violent, less less on the assassination front, uh, more on the sometimes detaining people, threatening people, um, bullying people to try and shut down external dissidents, right, which is the big target of a lot of these sorts of activities. Russia has been doing this for many years, kind of at like a, maybe a slightly less systemic scale. But we've seen lots of Russian dissidents get thrown out of multi-story windows or suddenly come down with various types of poisoning for the last 10 years, really. Um, and a lot of very high profile incidents. Um, it's part of the authoritarian playbook. And that's something that I think correctly now Western governments are beginning to bring attention to and really crack down on because they understand, just as these authoritarian regimes understand, those external sources of dissent are real. And you can't cut off the lines from them into your country. A lot of the protest movement, a lot of the opposition movements in Russia and China uh, and in Iran, they're tied into the global community and the fact that you have Russians, Chinese and Iranians in the outside world who see life as different, have been exposed to different political values and are trying to bring those back home to different degrees um, or send them back home if not going back to themselves. And that makes part of the authoritarian mission exerting control outside. That's one thing that Western governments and other opposed governments that oppose these sorts of actions, even though there might be very good reasons they don't want to and shouldn't be involved in trying to change political situations inside foreign countries, even when they're severely unjust and we see these protest movements that a lot of people sympathize with, this is one thing they really can do is stop those instruments of repression and control from being exercised outside of those countries' borders. And I think it's likely to become, frankly, a big policy initiative for the United States on on all these fronts uh, and allied governments because they have these methods have become so prevalent, uh, do pose lots of legal, domestic, international and policy concerns, uh, and is something they can really channel other anger with these regimes towards without triggering bigger international consequences or concerns. Yeah, just to add in, there's also uh, some really alarming New York Times reporting from November, if I'm remembering correctly, about uh, Iranian and Chinese government sources sort of hiring American private investigators under false pretenses to watch and collect information on uh, these dissidents in the U.S. So which I, I thought was striking insofar as, you know, it, it's not just engaging in this kind of transnational repression. It's roping, unwitting uh, folks who you know are just trying to do their jobs in this case as private investigators um, into this this scheme, which is pretty striking and disturbing. Well, from the actions of the Justice Department 
in Iran of some sort, at least the attorney general there, to the actions of the Justice Department here at home. <laughs> Let us turn. I, I am sure Merrick Garland loves that. Uh, loves that parallel. Love loves that. I'm sure I'm the first person to do this, hopefully. For his sake, I hope so. <laughs> but let us return to our favorite state of the union these last few months, the state of Florida, uh, which has brought us so many entertaining and interesting tales to unravel the latest chapter in, of course, the Mar-a-Lago search and investigation uh, controversy that we have all been following these last several months. What began with a simple FBI search of a former president's luxury estate uh, in Mar-a-Lago estate in the state of Florida has now spiraled off into some weird streams of litigation in some even stranger jurisdictions that one would not think have necessarily ties to the matter. And it turns out that that may have been true, at least in the eyes of the 11th Circuit which this past week issued a ruling essentially saying that Judge Eileen Cannon, the district court judge who um, effectively took up former President Trump's request to impose a special master to review the evidence collected from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI, even though her jurisdictional ties to the matter were pretty much non-existent, uh, other than the fact that Trump, uh, former President Trump seemed to come to her in her court. The, that ruling where she said she had the jurisdiction to do that issue, the special master that has been behind this whole process we've seen playing out with a special master these last few months has now been invalidated as requested by the Justice Department. So now not only does it not apply to the classified information collected by the FBI, that was the status quo as of a few months ago. Now the whole system, the whole kit and caboodle has been removed, at least pending appeal to the Ombank 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court, um, which is still forthcoming last I checked. I had the opportunity to uh, talk about this on Lawfare Podcast last week, but you both were traveling on the road, and so it seems only fair to turn it over to you for your sense about the significance of this decision, what it means for this investigation, and potentially for other investigations moving forward. Quinta, let me start with you. What was your reaction when you saw this decision come down? Yeah, what a long, strange trip it's been. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, I don't think this was a surprise uh, when the 11th Circuit had ruled previously on uh, Judge Cannon's order in a separate context um, regarding the classified material. It was pretty clear, I think, that its reasoning uh, slapping down Judge Cannon on, on that portion applied more broadly to the rest of her decision appointing a special master. So I think anyone who could read the tea leaves had pretty much seen this coming for a while. That said, I mean, it's it's still striking for a number of reasons. One is obviously that it really clears the path for the Justice Department to move full speed ahead in an investigation that had had plenty of stuff thrown in the way. The other is just the sort of spectacle of seeing Judge Cannon rebuked so thoroughly and uh, in quite sharp language at points by a panel that was by no means made up of liberal squishes. So there were Two Trump appointees, um, I think both quite conservative and uh, none other than uh, Judge William Pryor. Definitely not anyone's idea of a liberal squish. This uh, gentle listeners is the guy who spent his appearance at the Federalist Society conference berating journalists who had said mean things about him. Even even he, even Judge Pryor, even the liberal Judge Pryor felt that uh, Cannon had, had gone too far. So I think that is striking. It suggests just how far afield Cannon had really wandered in making this ruling and perhaps is encouraging in terms of what it says about the ability of the judiciary to sort of uh, hold the line in, in certain circumstances. That said, on the other hand, you know, Cannon had kind of wandered so far afield that it would have been pretty shocking if the 11th Circuit hadn't stepped in at, at this point. 
So th- there is a famous scene in the otherwise very stupid movie Billy Madison from the mid nineties, in in which the in which the the principal famously says, "Mr. Madison, what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard." At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. And I have to say, this whole Mar-a-Lago saga, and just particularly just the endless hash of law that Judge Cannon made, it just made us all dumber. We didn't learn anything. There were no interesting legal issues here. There were no interesting factual issues here. It was just stupid. It was stupid from the very beginning. And it's great that it ended with the 11th Circuit, in particular, this panel of the 11th Circuit. I think the correct term is a bench slap. But no one's smarter for this, right? And so it's, it's just a, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to start impugning the integrity of judges. And I don't love the, you know, Trump judge, Biden judge, Obama judge label. I think it's, it's um, Sorry. I think it's... Well, I, I, I think I, I think the idea of judges as partisan, right, rather than policy motivated is is has you know, yet to be proven as a general matter. But <laughs> but um I, I do I really do think that that the not just the original decision by Judge Cannon, but her insistence at every possible opportunity to pick up her shovel and continue digging herself, right? She got like three quarters of the way to China um by the time the eleventh circuit finally stepped in. Um, really does raise really, really serious concerns about just basic professionalism and mostly what the hell is she doing? Um, so again, it, it's a good outcome, but the whole thing was just so unnecessary and nothing like the law has not been advanced, right? It's just this really stupid mistake was was corrected. And I don't know, I feel like the sooner we forget about this, the better. So I don't necessarily disagree with that. I will know one thing. I think with, that with, is with my unhinged ranting, I'm glad. I'm glad Scott Scott associates himself with the uh, the crazy gentleman with, from with whatever ranting may have, may have, you may have come out. Um, <laughs> what I will say is I do think there's a significance of this for the AML investigation specifically, um, which is simply that the 11th Circuit, at least this panel, the 11th Circuit, but again, it seems like a fairly representative, if not Trump friendly from, you know, the general metrics of the random 11th Circuit judges you could have pulled panel. And we'll find out if they decide to try to bring this on banc, which I suspect they very well might just to kind of drag out the clock a little bit more, whether the 11th Circuit on banc feels differently. I doubt they do. But it does strongly signal that they're not really willing to brook a lot of these major disruptive things that courts and judges could try and do. I do think that's significant because there's only two federal courts or federal jurisdictions that have like potential claims over this matter. One's Florida. Now this judge really didn't have that claim even for despite being in Florida, but nonetheless you have an angle because of Mar-a-Lago is there and activities related to this took place there. And then you have Washington, DC, you know, Washington, DC, frankly, a very professional set of judges, very law enforcement leaning, a lot of former DOJ people in the judiciary in Washington, D.C., true everywhere, particularly true of D.C., because we have such a strong federal government presence. Um, so I think you're much less worried about people doing sort of outlandish things. And I think the signal is the 11th Circuit's not really willing to put up for it later either. So if there were other tools the Trump team might try and pull out in this investigation, or maybe in other ones, because Trump has close ties to Florida. And, you know, Florida is a, 11th Circuit is a place where he had a lot of influence, both at the appellate level and at the district court level. 
it's a, it shows that that influence in terms of his appointees isn't going to carry over to very preferential treatment, at least in the 11th Circuit level, which is important because um, it does kind of disincentivize those sorts of machinations in the future to some extent, I think. Uh, because the, the court really, the 11th Circuit really framed itself very expressly as saying, look, you're, we either ha- you're actually presenting us a situation where either we have to ditch our precedent, provide an unprecedented new right to all the victims of a search, or carve out special rules to the president. And we're not willing to do number three, which is the one path of least resistance they could have pursued to give President Trump what he wanted. But Scott, don't you understand? It's not a search. It's a jackbooted raid on, <laughs> on, the, new, jack- on, new, on the new Versailles. What are jackfruits? I don't know. A I always dawn, think of ja- a dawn raid. I always think of jackfruits, but I I don't think they're related. Delicious jackfruits are delicious. Oh, they're uh, so good. According to Wikipedia, <laughs> yes, please could bring us a back. A jackfruit is a military boot, such as the cavalry jackfruit or the hobnailed jackfruit. So there you go. Ooh, I'm a, I'm right. a hobnailed jackfruit guy myself. If anyone's right. looking for a if anyone's looking for a, a, a stocking stuffer for me, I'd, I'd like a hobnailed jackfruit. You're only gonna be able to fit one in there. <laughs> Google knows. Uh, used as a symbol of cruel or authoritarian behavior or role, which is in fact the only context in which I've ever heard it referenced. Yes, me too. The Wikipedia page has a, a subheading for totalitarianism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you guys this before we before we go off this topic and go to object lessons. Where do we think this investigation goes in terms of what we should be looking for next? Like, what's the next sphere of action? Is it D.C. or Florida, I guess, where they to bring criminal charges against some people? Is it, you know, more grand juries and further investigatory steps? Like, what do we what do we expect to come of this investigation, which now it's worth noting is under the supervision of. Uh, Jack Smith, DOJ special counsel, who's noted wizard Jack Smith. Yes, very wizardly looking gentleman. If he kept that beard, I hope he did. He still got those purple robes from his time at the International Tribunal somewhere in his closet. Um, I'm sure he just wears them to sleep in at night because they look very comfortable. You know, what what is the next sphere of action? We've said, frankly, I remember countless lawfare events we've said where we kept saying, this is probably the last thing we're going to hear on this for a while. We kept being proven wrong (laughs) because of these crazy proceedings that came out of nowhere. They're now done except for, you know, potential appeal. But again, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Does that mean we are finally going to be right that we're not going to hear much about this matter? Or is there some other form where we're likely to see information bubble up? I'm just waiting for Trump to walk into the, I don't know, International Criminal Court in The Hague or something and, you know, raise, raise some issue. I mean, I, you know, so so again, never never underestimate Trump and his lawyer's willingness to make crazy arguments. And, and I mean, here the problem is, of course, that we, we don't know what what uh, what Gandalf and his uh, merry band uh, in the special counsel's office is up to. And I just say that because I'm jealous. Just so you know, Jack, I'm just, I'm just jealous of your beard. This is all me projecting. Uh, I, I think it depends on on how cautious the department wants to be with respect to the underlying question, which is really about, I think, Trump's intent and knowledge, and in particular, how much evidence they have that you know he knew what he was doing was wrong. I mean, obviously, there's some evidence regarding the commingling of his you know, private documents and passports with with some of this material that's does not look great for him. At the same time, it's always better if you can get testimony from underlings. Uh, and the way you do that, like you do in any organized crime prosecution, which is just how one has to think about Trump and has had to think about Trump for the last six years or so, uh, is by finding people at the you know bottom floor and then rolling them up and then getting you know people going up and up and up. There aren't that many levels, frankly, with, at least with respect to this uh, scheme. But I think that would be something to, to look forward, right? Um, because it's very unlikely that the Justice Department's going to indict Trump without indicting the underlings who who helped him commit these crimes. 
Yeah, I'm kind of hesitant to make any predictions because, as you noted, Scott, we've been pretty wrong at every single stage. <laughs> that will not stop us. We are podcasters. Yes, we will keep going. We will never hold ourselves accountable. I think our analysis has been spot on otherwise. It's just the expectations of initial <laughs> proceedings. Didn't us a couple of times. Our, our, spoken like a true academic, our analysis, everything worked in theory. Unfortunately, the only right. problem was reality. Imagine a, a spherical special counsel in a vacuum. <laughs> Um, in in all seriousness, I mean, look, I I don't know. I I do think it's it's noteworthy that right before we started recording this, uh, the Washington Post had a story about subpoenas being sent out under Jack Smith's name to a variety of state and local officials concerning uh, the January sixth investigation regarding communications with Trump. I I note that just to say that to the extent that folks were worried that pulling in Smith as special counsel would lead to delays in the investigation. I think that might be an indication that this will not be the case, uh, seeing as the, those subpoenas, if you look at the dates, went out about four days after Smith was first appointed, which I may mean that he signed off on the subpoenas from the Netherlands, because if I remember correctly, he was recuperating there from a bike injury. So uh, justice, justice waits for no man. He waved his wand. Exactly. And- uh, but so, so you know, and now it seems like the department may be able to start moving more quickly on the Mar-a-Lago investigation, all of which means that, you know, to the extent that folks were concerned that Trump had kind of forced the Justice Department's hand into appointing a special counsel by announcing uh, his candidacy for 2024 and that that would kind of hamstring the department. That so far seems to not be the case. That's frankly the only prediction that I'm really comfortable making at this stage. Who knows what will happen? Yeah, we'll have to wait and see uh, what what the next kind of phase of this is. But um, I do suspect we might get a little bit of a lull for a little while. <laughs> but we'll see if I'm wrong about Scott, that. Scott, you just you can't help yourself. Just don't make predictions. <laughs> but I just don't know what else it would be until Scott's, they actually indict somebody. Scott's ensured that we're going to have a, a rip roaring two weeks of news. Yeah, well, we'll see. ruined we'll everyone's see holiday season, Scott. Exactly. So b- before we close this out, I, I do just want to observe something that I-, I will say I am quite surprised about, which is that this is not just Trump, the former president. This is Trump who is actively a nominee for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, I think has to be considered at least a co-front runner, if not the front runner. And what I've been surprised about is how kind of no one cares. Um, certainly DOJ, I mean, obviously Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith as a special counsel because of this, but the the investigation is going full speed ahead. You're not really seeing other members of the GOP getting up and saying what they frankly said when Mar-a-Lago was initially searched, that this was a deep state or not even a deep state, just a you know, Biden administration attempt to 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 you know punish political opponents. Um, I've just been surprised that the Ongoing, the fact of an ongoing investigation of the former president and presumptive Republican nominee is not a bigger deal. And I wonder if you all agree with me that that's, I'm you know, reading the vibes correctly. And if so, is it just because we all kind of know that Trump is a criminal and it's just been so long and we're all just, we all just don't, we all just, we just don't care in, in, in the sense that like, we, we, we don't care about this particular um, undermining of democratic norms because Trump has been undermining democratic norms for such a long time and it needs a response. I- I'm a little surprised, actually, just at, at my own lack of, I don't know, surprise. 
Are you surprised that the criminal investigation hasn't undermined his credibility as a candidate? Or that his candidacy hasn't undermined the investigation as to whether he's committed criminal conduct. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess, kind of both, right? Because you would think that either we'd all be freaking out that the government is going after the like the current president's most likely political opponent, or alternatively, we think that the fact that the United States Department of Justice is investigating Trump would sink his campaign, which of course was like the whole assumption behind the investigation of Clinton's emails. And neither of those things are happening. It's like this weird parallel universe situation. And I'm just, I, I don't know what this means about what's going on in our country. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, I now can't find the the story anywhere, but I think I saw some CNN reporting about Republicans who are basically like bewildered by where Trump is. So he he made this declaration of his candidacy in a speech that I personally would describe as low energy and sad. And then he he hasn't really been anywhere. I mean, he's he's been truthing. He called just by the way, the only thing we haven't talked about is that he called for the cancellation of the constitution oh, last yeah, week, right. which is like we all have right. decided to ignore but is bananas. <laughs> that's a complicated subject. But like that's kind of he is not acting like a candidate. Right. He he posted some truths. One of those truths called for, yes, the uh, eradication of the, <laughs> the Constitution. Constitution. Um, but MBD. he hasn't been doing like candidate things. He hasn't been on television. He hasn't been on the radio. He hasn't been doing rallies like he's not really anywhere. And so if the idea on his part was like, I, I kind of wonder whether his plan was basically declare your candidacy. That's like, you know, the break glass in case of emergency move that you're making and then like that will solve the problem somehow and it turned out that that didn't actually solve the problems uh but he didn't have a plan beyond just like making the announcement i I don't know it, it's like the, it's like the it's like the meme where it's like you know step one do something step two black box step three profit and it's like i announced for my candidacy and then something 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 i'm president again that's actually his entire business career it's totally his business career you know, it, but it, it's one of these things where we have to bear in mind, like, he was elected under really weird circumstances the first time, right? He didn't do a lot of typical candidate stuff for a while after he was actually, like, a candidate. And it had this kind of, like, remember, that was the election where we saw popularity rapidly shoot between a variety of candidates uh, that were really popular for two or three weeks, hitting all these huge poll numbers with Republican, likely primary voters, and then dropping off the face of the planet. And Trump was kind of like the last one of those who kind of wrote it out and then won a couple early primary states and Republican primaries with like 30% of the vote. So a plurality, not even a majority. And then because of the winner-take-all system in the Republican primaries at the time, they've tweaked slightly took ran away with the first couple of states and then he became inevitable. And so like, he's not a guy who's like used to having to do stuff like that. And like, you know, he's also just suffered a major defeat. As we've already said, 2022 was a big defeat for former president Trump. I don't think it's easy to walk away from that. Like his chosen candidates performed poorly uh, below other Republican candidates. And, and, you know, after that, if you, if what you're doing hasn't worked and you're not like strategically a strategic thinker, you're kind of bucking the conventional wisdom. I'm not sure he he knows where to go next necessarily, except back to like a familiar playbook is let's just declare a nomination, uh, a candidacy and well, let's see what happens. So I, I did manage to find the CNN story. It's titled uh, Trump's slow 2024 start worries allies. And uh, it has includes a quote from a 2020 Trump campaign advisor saying, so far, he has gone down from his bedroom, made an announcement, gone back up to his bedroom, and hasn't been seen since except to have dinner with a white supremacist. 
it's 1000% a ho-hum campaign. What I'll say is about those two directional relationships I, I asked you about, Alan, is like, I actually think there's a pretty significant effect for both in both directions. I just think it's a lot more subtle because no one can, who's implementing this sort of decision, whose decisions are shaped by it, can really acknowledge it, right? Like, did Trump's candidacy impact the investigation in Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, I, I suspect it did. I suspect they weren't going to do anything major 60 days in advance. I suspect that, as I've said repeatedly here on other author podcasts, like Justice Department, Department took a very small C conservative approach to challenging this crazy special master process that got st- stood up in part because it is a weird case. Uh, and they kind of got shoved into having to finally pursue this full appeal um, by Judge Cannon's own kind of reckless behavior. And they wouldn't have done that with another sort of candidate who never even had opportunities like this in the first place. And I think they deliberately, like, probably slow rolled things in the 30 to 60 days before this last election, even though he wasn't a candidate. There's no DOJ policy about it, but because it clearly has political ramifications. And I suspect that's going to be true moving forward. Like, I think DOJ is probably under a lot of pressure to try and get pretty far in the investigation and make some decisions about where it's going to go before, frankly, probably the first Republican primary race. Is if he's still a candidate, even though it's not within the DOJ policy, I don't think, because not a national election. But the logic behind the policy extends probably to primaries as well um, and primary candidates. And there'd be a, a strong incentive to try and get things done before that. On the flip side, though, is this weakening Trump? I think it is. Like, I think this is part of the reason why the narrative around Trump now is, oh, he's reckless. He's a risk and he's a loser. You know, he's not helping us win elections and he comes with all these downside risks. So what's the point of this? And narrative shifts are never like, attributable to you know one-to-one. They're really hard to track and attribute to any specific behavior and say, this is the reason why. And frankly, if you ask somebody, like if you're doing a, a poll and you're like, what made you turn against Trump? People's self-reporting, I think, never really reflects like what their actual logical process is, in part because there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and a bunch of other things. And they've already trained themselves to say, well, this is all a witch hunt against Trump. But the collective effect is there. Like you see it among Republican elites, certainly. I think you're seeing it among Republican voters. And I, I think it's a sign that his moment is closing, if not closed already. And that means it's going to be a lot for his political or legal consequences for him, I expect, in the long run, um, and also obviously has political consequences as well. I mean, it's also worth noting that we're, of course, recording this, what, a few hours before the polls close in Georgia uh, for the the runoff election. And uh, if by the time that you are listening to this, Raphael Warnock has been reelected as the Democratic senator from Georgia, I think Trump's hand will look uh, much weaker than it will if Walker somehow scrapes it out. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But 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 yeah, I don't know how much Walker is going to salvage him either. But we'll have to wait and see. Definitely true. But it will be even worse if he loses. That's, that's absolutely right. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time for this week's episode. But this would not be Rational Security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over, along with my weird rhythm of how I'm reading this. Over the next week until we are back in your podcatcher. Alan, what do you have for us for your object lesson this week? So, my object lesson is a short film that I suspect will be a real contender for the Oscars. And that is, of course, our very own Benjamin Wittes and Quinta Jurassic. Oh, in no. A, in, a oh, no. Give, in an end of year give money to Brookings pitch, involves Ben trying and failing to light the baby cannon, it involves Quinta looking just classic Quinta. You know, not angry, just disappointed face. And then this fabulous, <laughs> dramatic, like pivot to the camera. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I love these two people so much. And it's just, it's just fabulous. And I, Quinta, I, I will say this now. 
I will, in fact, donate to Brookings if I can get the uh, blooper reel of that. Uh, uh, can I can I get back to you on that? You one? can get back to me on that, but that's it's, my it's object. It's an honor just to be nominated. That's <laughs> good answer. <laughs> Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Uh, I, I have a plea to people not to watch that video. Um, in all seriousness, uh, I, uh, while traveling to and from scenic Hanover, New Hampshire this weekend, I finally had the chance to catch up on a new podcast uh, from Rachel Maddow called Ultra, which is about civil society and government efforts to counter a surge in far-right extremism in the United States in the run-up to World War II and during it, including a prosecution for none other than seditious conspiracy. Um, I found it very, very interesting, well-reported, well done. Uh, my only regret is that it wasn't like five times as long because there were so many interesting rabbit holes, including uh, someone I had never heard of, a Jewish uh war veteran in Los Angeles who basically created a network of of spies to infiltrate far-right movements across the United States and sort of collect intelligence on them because he felt that the government was not doing enough to stop these people. Totally fascinating. Would read a biography, would watch a Netflix series. Um, I also found it interesting just because Maddow was really one of the voices who was kind of cheerleading Robert Mueller early on as, you know, the the, the thing that was going to get us out of this Trump mess. And one of the, without giving any spoilers, uh, the podcast kind of takes a turn at the end and she really raises the question and, and makes the case that the legal system alone is not enough to counter this kind of sort of cultural and political rot that there needs to be, that the legal system is not and cannot be enough necessarily. Uh, I found that kind of, uh, interesting, I don't know if you want to call it change in view, radicalization, something else, uh, but uh, interesting sort of marker of maybe of how culturally folks have changed their thinking since the early days of the the Mueller investigation. But that meta point aside, I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to do go down some Wikipedia rabbit holes after finishing it, um, and I would recommend it to uh, anyone who's interested in learning more about this time period or just listening to a good nonfiction podcast. I started a couple of weeks ago. It is very, I mean, it was just last week, but it's uh, very good. I haven't only gotten an episode in, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into the rest of the series. For my object lesson, it is the holiday season. And I have already started digging back into my favorite holiday movies. My wife and I are playing Hulu Roulette last night, which is where we randomly pick one of Hulu's thousands of horrible, horrible holiday movies and watch the first 10 minutes and see if we can stand to watch it all the way to the end, which uh, it took a couple of tries before we found one where we could. But I have very important news from my object lesson last year, uh, which if you recall, I had to issue a little bit of a mea culpa on um, because my understanding was that Disney Plus had restored A Muppet Christmas Carol, a true classic holiday film for those who have not seen it, to include the cut song, love song uh, involving Scrooge and the departure of his lady love. It was very sad. Uh, back into the movie because it had been cut out from the release to home VHS video that I grew up with. It had been cut out when it was put on streaming mode, mode and then supposedly it was lost. And what they did is they found the extracted scene and put it on as an extra, but they didn't reintegrate into the movie, which I found infuriating. But this December 11th, Disney Plus has promised they are restoring the movie with that scene in an extended edition. So you can go back on and watch the movie as originally intended 
by the auteur Jim Henson himself. I actually think it's his son, not him, uh, who did that movie. But regardless, uh, to watch it with that extra scene, it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. It's a lovely song, uh, an all-around hilarious and lovely, very charming movie. And because I don't want to leave you without an additional object lesson or something to watch new this year, since this is just a rehash of last year, I will also point out that I have found a wonderful, wonderful YouTube posting of one of the best Muppet Christmas specials, a Muppet Family Christmas from 1987. It has not just the Muppets, but the Muppet Babies and Sesame Street and Fraggles all in one amazing show. It brought together the whole Jim Henson broader universe at the absolute peak of their influence for a truly magnificent 47 minute. This version includes all the cut scenes that were cut out of all the streaming versions. I found in other ones uh, that I can remember from my VHS where I'll record off the TV version I watched for years and years and years as a child. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes and in the Twitter feed. Scott, can we, is there like a Muppet con you can go to and just like get all your Muppet stuff could, out? Yeah. Could, could we get ads from the Muppets? I, we would happily take Muppet money uh, no matter how fluffy or fur covered it might be or, or, or what animal is pictured on it. Um, we would happily take that. We have several listeners who are equally, equally adamant Muppet heads and we regularly correspond on Twitter about Muppet events. You should have a Muppet Mastodon. A Muptodon, one might say. Oh. Perhaps. A, a partic- very particular instance um, with Snuffleupagus as the logo. I like that. Um, we will, we'll have to see. Um, well, folks, until we get back to Muppet News for next week. This is the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear in production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcasts. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 